Amen. Grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is where we're going to be today uh, as we continue our series on the secret of marriage. I uh, hope you got a, uh, oh, I almost forgot, never mind. Uh, yeah, I, I will get really in trouble if I don't remember this. We're going to continue our worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Um, <laughs> the elders get really mad when I don't do that. So uh, you're going to find offering baskets on the left side of the row. If you'll grab those uh, and pass them to your right, we'll have some ushers who will pick those up. If you are a guest here among us, please do not feel any obligation to give. Uh, this is really for us uh, here at Double Oak who call this place home. Uh, we're going to honor the Lord with our, our tithes and offerings. And so pass that down, if you will, and those ushers will come uh, and pick it up. Guys, thank you all. I appreciate that. Now, uh, we will look to 1 Corinthians 13. Hopefully, you've got a copy of God's Word with you, maybe a device. If not, I'm sure somebody next to you will be happy for you to look on with them uh, as we jump into our text. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, in just a moment. Look, we've been talking about love over the course of this series. As you talk about marriage, you have to talk about love. Uh, and when you talk about being in love, uh, people who are in love are prone to making grand announcements. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, they are hyperbolic. Uh, they typically talk in grandiose terms about their love. This is not a little love. This is the biggest love that there has ever been. And, and they're usually making these grand pronouncements of things that they would do to prove their love, right? Like I would go to the moon and back. I would swim across the oceans. I, I love you a million. I love you a billion. It's, a, it's all these grand pronouncements of love, these grand declarations that I love you so much that I would, and, and there's just a little, any of these all throughout history. You find them in poetry, you find them in writings, you find them uh, just you know, all throughout different cultures, and you certainly find them in song. And we looked at a few songs last week, but there's all kinds of songs where people talk about these grand pronouncements of what they would do because of their love for someone else. And I was reminded of one of those songs last week. It was a song that came out right after I graduated from high school that I still remember. It's one of those earworms you just can't forget. It was a one-hit wonder uh, by a group called the, uh, the Proclaimers. It was a Scottish duo uh, who was really big over in Europe, but they only had one hit here in America, and it was a song called I'm Gonna Be. Uh, and you might not remember that title, but you probably remember the chorus, which just simply said, I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk... 500 more just to be the man who would fall down, uh, walk a thousand miles to fall down at your door. <laughs> da -da -da, da -da -da. You remember that? It was Scottish, right? You had that little thing going on. If you you might have caught it, but they played it during the greeting time. Did you catch that? Some of y'all caught that. The guys in the back did. Uh, and so listen, uh, it's, uh, you still remember it, right? But here's the idea. I would walk a thousand miles because I love you. Right? If somebody said, I would walk a thousand miles because I care for you so much. And when people make these kind of grand pronouncements, they, they mean it, right? Uh, they really do mean it. I would walk a thousand miles because I, I love you so much. But, but I wonder if you actually tried to do that, like what it would actually be like. What would it be like if you actually tried to walk a thousand miles because you loved somebody else? How long would that actually how, how long would that take? I, I did some math. It was hard, all right? Uh, but, but the math is this. Let's say you walked 20 miles a day, okay? That's, that's doable, right? I mean, you got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to, you know, stop for breaks. And so if you could, we're not running, right? Uh, you're, you're walking. You could walk 20 miles a day. At 20 miles a day, it would take you 50 days to walk 1,000 miles. 50 days to walk 1,000 miles. Now, how do you feel about this on day one? 
Well, I bet you feel great. <clears throat> You're embarking on this adventure, right? You're going to do this grand act. You're like, I would walk 500 miles. You're excited about it, right? But, but how are you feeling on day 37? Because imagine by day 37, you're not as jaunty, right? You're just not. That's not how you feel. You've been walking for a month, and you still have two weeks to go. Weeks to keep walking. You're not happy anymore. Like, I'm still walking 500 miles. I mean, you're really not all that happy about it anymore. You're going to keep doing it. Because you've gotten this far, you can't quit now. You're probably going to trudge through, but, but your feelings have changed. So you still believe what you said. Yes, I'm still going to follow through with what I said, but my, my feelings are different, but my commitment is not. And so look, at the end of the day, most people just don't do this kind of thing. They don't actually walk a thousand miles. They don't actually swim the oceans. They don't actually go and do these grand acts. In fact, almost nobody does any of those things until you get married. And then you actually do. Because if you get married to somebody, you may not know it, but you're going to walk way, more, way longer than 1,000 miles with that person. You're going to walk way farther than 1,000 miles with a person that you're married to. Think about it. I, there was a couple here. They were visitors. In the first service, they were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. If you walked 50 years with somebody and you walked 20 miles a day, you would have walked 365,000 miles with that person. Not 1,000, 365,000 miles. That's 14,000 marathons. You would walk with this person that you were with. You actually do live this out. But if you follow through with that commitment and you stay married and you walk with this person, there will be days where you feel like it's day one and you're exuberant and you're so excited about it. And then there's going to be days when you're gonna feel like day 37, where you're still committed, but it doesn't feel like it did at day one. And there's ups and downs all along the way. And so what does that teach us about the realities of marriage? Look, if you're a visitor here today, and I know we got a, little bit, a lot of visitors, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. We've been talking about the secret of marriage. And just in case you weren't here, let me just go ahead and tell you what the secret is. Marriage is about the gospel. That's why God gave it to us. It's like this object lesson that he has baked into humanity that as you and I live in a marriage, that he is showing us what the relationship between God and his people is like. Christ is the bridegroom and his church is the bride. We are his bride. And so marriage is this, this almost metaphor as we live in this marriage and we learn to love uh, the person that you're married to. God is showing us something about himself. And so marriage is really about the gospel. But then the flip side is also true. The gospel can help you understand your marriage. If you want to know how to live in your marriage, how to have a successful marriage, we don't have to read tons of books. We can look to the gospel. How does God love us? How is he loving us? And that can help us understand how we are to love the person that God has given to us in marriage. And so that's the secret that he's given. So, so what does that mean for us? What do we learn from the gospel about how we are to actually love someone for not just a, a day or for 37 days, but for 37 years? What does that look like? Well, there's a couple of things we need to understand right off the bat. The first is this. God has incredibly strong feelings about you. Do you believe that? 
that God has incredibly strong feelings of love towards you. You may have asked the question before, how does God feel about me? You may be worried that he's, he's, he's angry at you or he's frustrated at you. Actually, he has incredibly strong feelings of love towards you. Let me show you some of these verses uh, all throughout scripture. Here's Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now that's a sermon in and of itself. I mean, look at that. He says, he is, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his strong love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He is exuberant. This is not tepid. This is not middling. This is overflowing. This is an amazing, incredible, overwhelming love that he feels for you. This is God's heart towards his people. Go to the next one. Here's Jeremiah verses 32, verses 40 and 41. God is speaking and he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. You see the marriage language? That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Now that's interesting language because remember the first commandment. We're supposed to love the Lord God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. But before we ever do that, God started it. He says, this is how I feel towards you. He's not just saying, well, love me and we'll see how this works out. He says, no, from the very beginning, I love you, not just a little bit, but with all my heart and with all my soul. He's making grand pronouncements because of the magnitude of his love for us. Go to the next one. This is Matthew 9, verse 36. Jesus is talking about Jesus. It says, and when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that might not seem so overwhelming, but, but, but when you look at this word here, he had compassion for them. That whole phrase is one word in the Greek. It's splonknitsomai, right? Which is fun to say. Splonknitsomai. Uh, and what this word means, it's a reference to your guts. Like it, with they, people in, the, in Greece, they thought the, the seat of feeling was your, in your innards, in your guts. And so this word for he had compassion on them, it is literally in the text a gut feeling. It is like that he is moved in spirit. He is moved in his person. He has this, this overwhelming urge to have compassion, to have pity, to, to help and to love. He is moved in spirit. This is how he feels towards us. Jesus is not this dis dispassionate person walking emotionlessly through life. You know, he is moved in love for us. Go to the next one. Uh, this is in Hosea. God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Now look, this is a quote from Hosea. And some of you might know the story of Hosea. God goes to a prophet and says, hey man, I want you to marry a prostitute. Spoiler alert, she's gonna cheat on you a lot. Which to he, he says, this sounds like a terrible plan. Why am I doing this? To which God says, that's how I feel. This is how I feel when my people keep running after idols. I feel like a jilted lover. I feel like a wife or a husband who's been cheated on. 
And some of you have been through that terrible horror before. And you have felt the incredible anger and frustration and pain to know that you have been cheated on by your spouse. And the Lord God of the universe can accurately say, I know how you feel. Because that's how he feels. He wouldn't feel that way if he didn't passionately love us. But, but even so, go back to the first phrase. You see him wrestling. He said, but I still love my beloved, but I have this anger and this wrath because of what they've done, but I can't give you up. There's this wrestling inside of himself because of his incredible love for us. And then look at the last one that he gives to us. This is Ephesians chapter four, verse 30. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It is possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit. It is possible for us to grieve the very heart of God when we rebel, when we are sinful, when we are disobedient, when we reject the Lord and walk away from him. God is not just dispassionate saying, oh, well, I guess it's fine. I know how it all works out in the end. No, it grieves the very heart of God when we rebel against him. And so look, this is important for us to understand that when God has feelings to you, for, towards you, th these are not mild feelings. God is not some grand mind out in the universe who just thinks grand thoughts. No, he feels, he loves. His, his love is not dispassionate. It is overwhelming. It is incredible. It is, it, is, it is massive. It is cosmic in its scope. This is God's love for you. If you have ever felt ignored, if you've ever felt uh, like you didn't matter, if you've ever wondered if anybody cared about you, look to scripture and hear what God says about you of his passionate and overwhelming love for you. This is how he feels about you. You ought to know that you are incredibly, completely loved by the God of the universe. But inside of this love is a bedrock foundation. Inside of these feelings for love, there is a bedrock foundation that does not move. God is not beholden to the whims of emotion. He is not tossed to and fro by an emotional sea. No, there is a bedrock of love in the midst of these emotions. In fact, look at this next one. This is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. All right, that word there in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord, that word is chesed in the Hebrew. And it is everywhere in the Old Testament. It is the word that describes the love of God. God gives it to us in his name in Exodus. He says, listen, this is my love. It is a steadfast love. That means it's a, it's a loyal love. It's a covenant love. It's a love that says, I love you regardless of how you act and regardless of what you do, I love you. And that is never going to change. It is solid, it is stable. You can see that last word, great is your faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. He will never, ever leave or forsake us. He will never, ever fail. He doesn't say, well, I feel differently today, so I'm gonna change what I do. No, my love is steadfast. It is stable. It is secure. You can always bank on it. In the Old Testament, we see this word everywhere in the word hesed. In the New Testament, we see a different word. It's a Greek word. It's the word agape. There's multiple words for love in the New Testament. You've got eros, that's erotic love. You've got phileo, that's brotherly love. And then there's agape. This is godlike love. It is a selfless love. 
It is a love that does not need anything in return. It is simply a love that is given regardless of what is given back. This is the kind of love that God has for us. He gives us agape. And he says this love is not going to change. You can bank on it. And this doesn't matter whether it's a, it's a good day or a bad day or if I feel good or not, I will always love you. And the greatest expression of this comes in the cross of Jesus Christ. I think we can safely assume that Jesus did not enjoy being crucified. This was a terrible day. It was immensely painful on so many different levels. It is the greatest tragedy that has ever been perpetrated against a human being. He is taking all of the sin of the world upon him. He does not enjoy this process. So why is he doing it? And he tells us plainly in Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his agape, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we weren't repenting. We weren't trying hard. We weren't coming back to church. We weren't doing our best. We were doing the opposite. We were running from him. We were rebellious against him. We were rejecting him openly. When we were at our worst, God loves us to the uttermost. That's agape. That's a love you can bank on. So listen, if God can love me there when I'm at my worst, this is a love that you can count on. You can be completely and totally secure in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be completely and totally secure in that he's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. That all his promises, he will keep. Why? Because this is agape. This is the, the bedrock of love that kind of forms the basis for all of those amazing feelings as well. Love requires both of these things. If you want the, the really kind of marriage, marriage that God is after, the kind of love that God is after, you've got this complex interaction of these incredibly strong feelings, but you also have this choice. This choice to love regardless of how it feels. The choice to love not just when it's great luck like on day one, but even when it's not great like day 37. You still love anyway. You still stay committed. Why? Because this is the love that God gives to us. So whether you're married or not, whether you're going to be married or not, you can be confident that the love God has for you is powerful and overwhelming. It is passionate, but it is also steadfast and faithful. This is the love God gives to us. Now, if that's the kind of love that God gives to us then, then what does that teach us about marriage? Okay, that's how marriage is about the gospel. Okay, how then does the gospel teach us about marriage? Well, for that, uh, we actually need to go to a very familiar passage. That's why we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Uh, this is a famous passage in scripture. And in fact, it's one of the few passages that has a nickname. Uh, it's the blank chapter. It's the, the love chapter, right? Uh, and, and look, there's typically a place you hear this uh, spoken about. You typically hear for 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding. Yeah, all right. So I was actually at a wedding yesterday where we did not talk about this passage. But, um, and look, if you've been here at Double Oak before, we've talked about this passage and we've said this over and over. 1 Corinthians 13 is not primarily about weddings. It's not primarily about a married couple. It's about the church. We do not limit this kind of love simply between a husband and a wife. This ought to be the kind of love that's expressed really between all of us. But that certainly includes your husband or wife. 
And look, the relationship you have with your husband or wife is a place where you can experience this love and practice this love in a way that you simply cannot with everybody else in your spiritual community. And so we can take all of these lessons and we can apply it to the marriage relationship and say, okay, if we're going to love the same way that God loves us, if I'm being called to, to love my spouse in the same way that God loves me, then, then what does that actually look like? And so we get this beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Listen to what he says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It's a beautiful passage. You may have heard it before. You may really say, yeah, this is, this is the essence of love. This can really teach us what love is about, and that's true. But, but I wonder if you've really ever delved into this and really looked at each of these phrases because you find something interesting when you really study 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and specifically these few verses one of the first things that you find is this almost nowhere in these verses do you see emotions did you catch that what you see are actions when God talks about love he does not speak primarily in emotional terms he speaks in terms of actions, what we do. Now we know that God has feelings for us. We know that he loves us. And so those feelings are absolutely a part of the mix. But when he's teaching us about love and showing us how to love, he gets down to that bedrock. And, and if we're gonna really have that kind of love, the love that lasts a lifetime, the, the love that God loves us with, well, that's a choice that we have to make. And so the question for us this morning is, is as we, we love the person that God has given us to marry, as I love my wife or as you love your, your wife or husband, as you're thinking about a marriage in your future or the kind of love that you're going to prepare yourself for, the kind of person you want to marry who's going to be in this kind of relationship with you, we have to think through, am I willing not simply to feel? Feeling is easy. Feeling happens, by the way. You can't truly control your feelings. They just occur. You can respond, you can control what you do with your feelings. But feelings are going to happen, but I am in full control of how I respond, of what I'm going to do, whether I feel like it or not. And this is what God gives to us. And so as we think about our marriages, there's a few things we need to look at. First off, it says this, love is patient. Love is patient. You might say, well, right off the bat, Adam, there's an emotion right there. But I was thinking about this this week. And the more I thought about it, I began to realize, I don't think patience is an emotion. Do you? I don't actually, I can be patient. That is an act on my part. I don't think I've ever felt patient in my entire life. <laughs> Seriously, have you? I have felt impatient. I feel that all the time. But I have never felt patience. I choose to be patient. I choose to act in a patient manner. The word here in the Greek really means long-suffering. And that really helps as you get the idea of what's going on here, right? So I'm suffering something. I don't like that, but I'm choosing to stay in it, right? I'm choosing to endure whatever this thing is, right? If I was just left to my feelings, then I would just live in an impatient manner. And look, that's most of my life. It just is. If you know me, you know that's the case. This is how we live in most places. It, it certainly is how I live on the highway, all right? If you ever see me on the highway, I'll probably be going a little faster than I should. Um, I will be nice to you briefly, Okay. Uh, if you would like to get into my lane, do you put your turn signal on? I will be happy to let you into my lane. You have two seconds. 
And if you do not take that opportunity, I got places to go. I have things to do. I don't have time for you to go, I don't know if I want to go where I'm going. I don't have time for that. Should I, do I like that lane? Do I, I don't care. Pick one. Stay, go, but you got two seconds. I'm, I'm going. I'm going, right? I'm impatient. I got things to do. All right, long-suffering means I would actually sit back there and go, well, I don't know what they're doing. And I'm going to wait, right? Because you were making a choice at that point. I feel impatient, but if I'm going to be patient, I have to choose to be patient. And look, in the middle of a, a marriage, you are always going to have opportunities to choose patience. Because if you stay married for somebody for any length of time, there are going to be seasons where, guess what? Somebody's going to be sick and they're going to have an illness. They're going to be under some sort of un, uh, undue stress that's going to cause them a, a lot of just, it's just going to take them out of their normal routine. There's going to be an issue in their family that they have to deal with. Maybe it's personal stuff that they're having to work through and they're having to change. But for whatever reason, there are going to be separate seasons, temporary seasons where your spouse might not be as attentive to your needs as they used to be or you would like them to be. And what do you do with them? Are you angry? Are you upset? Can you throw this in their face or, or are you patient with them? That's not fun. That's long-suffering. I don't typically feel like doing that. I feel like being impatient, but I can make a choice to be patient. I can make a choice to say, because I love this person. I know what stress they're under. I know what they're dealing with right now. I know this is not normal. I know it's temporary. So guess what? I'm going to be long-suffering here. And I'm going to be patient with this person. That is love. That's the kind of love that God gives to us. And guess what? Your spouse is absolutely going to have to be patient with you. There's this dance in marriage where sometimes it's you, sometimes it's your spouse, where guess what? Now you're the one who's in trouble. You're the one who's not as attentive. You're the one who's, who's really struggling and your spouse is going to have to choose to be patient with you in the same way that the Lord is patient with us. In the same way that the Lord is always taking care of us, in the same way that when we have, we're working things out, we just don't see it yet, the Lord is still patient. He doesn't give up on us. We have to choose to be patient with the person that God has given to us in marriage. Here's the second block here. Uh, we're gonna skip kind, but look at the next few. It says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. This is interesting. I noted studying this this week. Uh, in this list, we only have a few things that we're supposed to do, but most of this list are things that we're not supposed to do. Did you catch that? I'm not self-seeking. I am not rude. I am not arrogant. Do you know why? Those are all things that we want to do. That's how we feel because all of us at our core are selfish. Let's just go ahead and admit it, right? It doesn't matter how nice we pretend to be. At our core, we are all selfish. That's what we Feel. That is just natural. That just comes out of us. Love demands that I reject myself for the sake of my wife. That you reject yourself, deny yourself for the sake of the one that you love. We're always saying no to ourselves so we can say yes to the person that we care about. This is what Jesus does when he lays aside his glory, all the things he rightfully deserves, and humbles himself 
to come and love us. We have this opportunity where instead of being rude, I just want to be who I am, I don't care if you like it or not, or, or, or arrogant, we're boasting about ourselves and trying to eclipse the person that we're with or, or, or seeking things first for myself. And if you get whatever you want, that's, that's great, but, but I got to get whatever I want first. You, you take care of yourself. I'll take care of myself. This is selfishness. And we're all prone to it. And so we have to look to the Lord and say, Father, can, can you help me not to envy, boast, be arrogant, rude, or insist on my own way? Instead, I want to choose to my, uh, my spouse. I want to choose the other. I want to love them first before me. Here's the next one after that. It says not irritable. This is an interesting word. Uh, it means not to be uh, easily provoked, easily angered, or easily offended. So the attitude here is, is if you're irritable, it means you're kind of on a hair trigger waiting for somebody to offend you. That, that whatever they say, you're kind of got an ear out and say, oh, I bet they're talking about me. Oh, I bet that person's angry at me. Oh, I bet they did that on purpose. It didn't matter what they did. They have no idea they did anything, by the way. But you are convinced that they said this thing on purpose to hurt you the worst. Okay, that's being irritable. If you find yourself sparking with your husband or wife at all points possible. Everything's a fight. Everything's an issue. Everything. It's just spark, 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 spark. Okay, that, that's irritability. Why? Because instead of choosing to think the best about my spouse, I'm choosing to think the worst. Instead of assuming the best, Adam, you don't know them. Okay, I, get, I don't. I get it. But look, they're probably not the evil ogre monster you're making them out to be, okay? Like, like, what, what if instead of assuming the worst, what if you assumed the best? I don't know what they meant, but can I just assume that they didn't intend to harm me? They didn't intend to hurt me? They didn't intend to slight me? They didn't intend to forget about that? What they, they just, I don't know why they forgot. But what if I assume the best instead of assume the worst? Okay, that's a choice that you have to make. Because if you don't, then we end up being irritable. Here's the next one, not resentful. Uh, this word means to keep a record of wrongs which in a marriage is very easy to do. Look, with a friend, you can kind of hang out here and there. They come and they go. You start spending 30, 40, 50 years with somebody, it is real easy to keep in your head a ledger of all of the things this person has done. It goes like this, right? You do something, and it's not all that great, right? And your spouse actually kind of calls you on it, or maybe it's your best friend, they call you on it. Hey, man, this was not great. Oh, yeah? Well, remember when you did, and then blah, 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 blah. You got the ledger out, and you're just flipping pages. You don't want to talk about what you did wrong. You have done all these things. Okay, that's, that's resentful, all right? That is keeping a record of wrongs. All right, look, that's, that's not love. Okay, love demands that you actually not keep that ledger. But Adam, you can't expect me. Yes, I can. Here's why. If there was anybody in the universe who had a right to keep a ledger, it's Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he pays for every single sin. Every one of them. They don't get lumped into a hole. He feels every one Every little slip, every little sin, Jesus pays for every single one. He has every right to remind us of all that we have done wrong. And instead he says, I'm going to throw their sins as far as the east from the west. It is as if I forgot them. They are not going to be brought up ever again. 
We are forgiven. We are accepted. We are loved because God doesn't keep a ledger. He doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. The cross has erased all of that. And if this is how God loves us as sinners, we, we in our marriages get an opportunity to not keep the ledger, to, to not keep this record of wrongs. And instead, we get to choose to forgive. Now, now look, I know that's a big topic and people say, well, Adam, you know, that can kind of be abused here. I'm not talking about papering over serious abuse or, or anything like that. And yes, there are consequences for sins and, and those things have to uh, occur, right? Or trust is not rebuilt overnight. I understand all that. But for the, the myriad number of small offenses that you and I have to bear or you and I perpetrate in our marriages, there's always going to be an opportunity to simply choose forgiveness. To simply say, I forgive you. And I'm not going to keep holding this over your head anymore. I'm not going to keep bringing this up. I need you to forgive me and I need to forgive you because we have both have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and this is how he's teaching us to love. This is how we grow. It's the only pathway. That's real love. You're not going to feel like it. I guarantee this. You will not feel like forgiving someone. No one ever does. And yet we are called to. Why? That's, that's love. This is what is required to have love between two sinners. And then look how it finishes out. It says love bears all things. I don't have to bear with anything that I enjoy. Have you noticed that? I just enjoy it. When things are amazing, I'm not bearing with it. I love it. But I have to bear with things that are unbearable. You believe all things. This is faith. Faith is hard sometimes, right? I don't see everything. I have to have faith. I hope all things. Why do I have to have hope? Because my faith is not seen just yet. But I know what's going to happen. I know it's coming because Jesus has promised this. And therefore, I have hope in all of these things. Love endures all things. I don't have to endure things that I enjoy. But if things are unendurable, they're painful. I have to endure them with long suffering. Why? Because this kind of love never fails. It never ends. It conquers everything. This is the love that God gives to us. Loving when we feel like it is frankly easy. It's effortless. It's really fun. But the true test of love is when we choose to love, not simply when we feel like it, but also when we don't. On days like day 37, not the first day, not the last day, but some of those days in the middle where it's not as enjoyable, but we choose to love anyway. You might say, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm in for that. I just don't know if I want to do that. That sounds painful. That sounds hard. It is. It's very hard. But can I tell you another secret? Here's another secret, different from the secret of marriage. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this in his books. He got it from C.S. Lewis, who, who talked about it as well. But he said there's an interesting thing that happens when you begin to love somebody even when you don't feel like it. When you begin to love simply because you choose to, not because you feel like it in the moment, if you consistently do that over time, you know what begins to happen? You actually begin to develop more feelings of love for that person. You actually do end up feeling more connected to that person. You feel more love for that person. And so when you don't rely just on the emotions, but you choose it even when they're not there, it actually leads to more emotions at the end and you're drawn even closer together. This is how marriages stay together for 30, 40, 50 years is because they continually grow closer because they choose in the lean times to love anyways. But the opposite is also true. 
If you decide to say, no, what, I'm going to act in anger. I'm going to act in resentment. I'm going to act in unforgiveness. Do you know what that really begins to do? It actually gives you more feelings of hate, more feelings of resentment, more feelings of pain, more feelings of anger. You actually make it worse and worse. You see, feelings aren't static. They, they flow. And I can either make that worse by giving in to those feelings or I can choose to follow the agape way. The Jesus way. I can choose to follow his way of love because when I do so, not only does he carry me through, but he actually gives me those feelings even deeper as well, even stronger as well. And I find a love that can last forever. This is how we love like Christ loves us. Not just when we feel like it, but also when we don't. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to close out in a hymn of worship in just a moment, but with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Look, I know we got a lot of graduating seniors here. You say, Adam, I'm not anywhere close to marriage, and that's, that's fine. It might be a really long time before you get married, but here's an opportunity for you to really make some choices as you head off into college or your next stage of life or wherever the Lord leads you to say, okay, what am I looking for when it comes to somebody I want to spend the rest of my life with? What kind of person do I need to be to be the kind of person who would attract someone who loves the Lord in all of these things. This is a chance to say, Father, teach me how to love like you do. And for all the married couples in the room, it's an opportunity to say, whether you've been married for a year or 10 or 20 or 30, and maybe you find yourself in year 37. Because Adam, it's, it's just not as easy this year as maybe it was two years ago or five years ago. It's different than how I expected don't give up. Hey, don't give in. Don't let the enemy tell you that there's some sort of grass is greener somewhere else. The Lord says, no, I, I've showed you the path of love. It's, it's my love. It's a love that lasts, a love that perseveres, a love that can change. But you don't have that kind of love inside yourself. Neither do I. The Lord can give it to us if we'll trust him, if we'll listen to him. And so even if your spouse isn't on board with that yet, you can make a call. You don't have to wait for them. You can go first and say, no, I choose to love like the Lord loves me. And see what he will do. See what healing he brings. And watch the Lord transform you, your spouse, your marriage into something you, you never thought was even possible. And so Father, help us. God, our, our human loves are fickle. They come and go. Many of them feel kind of flash in the pan. But your love lasts forever. It's steadfast, immovable, faithful. And Lord, that's what we need. And so Lord, would you bind all the married couples in the room even stronger together today as they rely not on their own love, but the love that you give to us. Lord, that you help us with. Lord, Lord, help them, encourage them, draw them together, bind them in your love. And Lord, for all of us who are, who are not married in the room, who may be seeking to be married or are recovering from a marriage that ended sadly, Lord, can you show us that incredible love that you have for us that can fill us, that is more than enough, that can satisfy. And would you help us to lean on you first and foremost before we ever tried to find uh, anything in someone else? Help us, Lord, to find that life in you. God, thank you for the love you have, the incredible feelings, the faithfulness, 
Lord, we can be confident and secure because of who you are and how you love us. Just thank you. And help us to see it, to understand it, to believe it, to live in it, and to trust you more. Lord, that we might enjoy this amazing love you have for us. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray.